Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode of Moving to Live. Whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, we appreciate you taking time to learn from our guests just like we do. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to leave some feedback for us with a review on whatever podcast app you use. And please tell your friends and acquaintances that you think might be interested in learning more about movement and the movement lifestyle about moving to live. I think you'll enjoy today's guest, Dr. Erica Bowling, who owns Northeast Canine Conditioning. Dogs are athletes too, and I think after listening to this interview, you'll agree that that's true. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. As you may have known from past episodes, our goal is to break down knowledge silos at the end of the day. No matter where you are in the movement field, you probably have one of two goals, to make people or four-legged animals move more or make people or four-legged animals move better. And you've heard in some past interviews, we've talked to some individuals who are involved professionally with dogs. You've heard me joke before that sometimes I find guests by, in the nicest possible way, stalking them on the internet and seeing posts that they make. In the case of tonight's guest, I believe I first saw her posts on Instagram, and I saw Northeast Canine Conditioning. I was like, well, what's that? And I looked it up, and this is a lady who has a business for working dogs and for athletic dogs to train them, not to train them to sit, to stay, to do various tricks, but to train them physiologically, just like if you or I go to a fitness trainer or a strength coach to improve our fitness for our activities. So today we are with Dr. Erica Bowling. She is the owner, founder of Northeast Canine Conditioning. We're going to find out a little bit more about her story and what made her decide that this was a good idea and an interesting idea and how she got to this point. So Dr. Bowling, thanks for taking time for talking to Moving to Live. Thank you so much for inviting me. Question I always like to start uh, Moving to Live interviews out with is, tell us your elevator spiel. You get on the elevator and you're carrying a briefcase or you're carrying a t-shirt or you've got a dog with a uh, harness on that says Northeast Canine Conditioning. <laughs> Somebody says, what is that? What do you tell them? 
Uh, I tell people, I, I help people take their sport dogs and working dogs and turning them into the elite canine athletes uh, that they are and that they should be. Um, but I guess when I talk to people, kind of wonder like, what exactly is this? It's kind of like if you think about a personal trainer um, and fitness training to keep our dogs fit and healthy. But I do specialize in the sport and working dog world. Of course, it helps all dogs, uh, pet dogs, working dogs, and sport dogs. But when, but when you think about the kinds of work that we ask them to do, um, we really need to prepare them, you know, physically for the demands of the work. And that's where the athletic part comes into it. And we're going to get more into that a little bit later in the interview. As I mentioned before we started recording, one of the things that I find most interesting, and I think a lot of the inter the uh, listeners find interesting, is the stories of how people get to where they are. You and I were chatting a little bit before recording. And you're saying, yeah, so many people say, oh, it must be wonderful to have this business where you can do whatever you want. And, and we know it doesn't start there. So I guess starting out, you are involved in the movement field. And one of the things I'm always curious as I get older is, were you an active mover growing up? And if so, is this something where mom and dad said, hey, get out the door and don't come back till dinner time? Or was this the sort of thing where maybe mom and dad were active or you grew up where mom and dad maybe said, you know, you're going to do yard work with us? <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I never thought about it from the mom and dad perspective, but um, I have um, I have an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. And uh, just from, you know, elementary school, being eight years old, I just remembered my brother played Little League Baseball. I wanted to play Little League Baseball, and I had to be on the boys' team. You know, I was like the only girl who played. And um, gosh, as early as can, I can remember, probably is the, my first involvement was probably around seven, eight years old playing um, baseball. As I got older, it went into um, softball. I did a little bit of volleyball and basketball at school, did a little bit of tennis for fun. Um, my very first job was as a swim instructor at 15 years old at the YMCA. And, um, and, and actually, after you had invited me to be out here, I was kind of thinking about that. And it was interesting because I started listing all the kinds of activities I've been involved in. I was like, wow, I've really, <laughs> I've really done a lot from it being an aerobics instructor. Um, in my early 20s, I took up karate. Um, in my 30s, maybe it was mid 30s, I, or later, I took up boxing. <laughs> um, I've run marathons. And so, um, yeah, you actually made me reflect on that before we, we got on today. And it's like, I've always I don't know what prompted it. Maybe just, you know, seeing my older brother was, you know, playing on the little league team and, you know, my dad would play baseball. He taught us how to throw, how to catch. Um, and it's just has, has always been there. Yeah. And I know from looking at the uh, brief bio you filled out beforehand, you really fit the ethos of moving to live that movement is a lifestyle. What I really found interesting. One of the questions we ask is what fitness means to you. And I think what's interesting is, the more interviews I do, the more similar answers I get. And your answer uh, was that the main reason was for psychological and mental reasons. And I know I interviewed a sleep researcher, Dr. Ian Dunnikin, uh, a, few, a few months back. And his comment was, it's non-negotiable for me, if at all possible, I move at least an hour a day, not for the physical benefits, but for the mental benefits. And you yeah. found the same thing too. And I know from reading your bio that you have been involved in higher education. And I'm just curious as somebody who was also involved in higher education, did you find back during your higher education career? Yeah. That some of your best ideas came when you were moving, not really thinking I need to do this, but some of your ideas. You know, I don't know if it came while I was moving, but you know, when I, I never dreamt that I would ever run a marathon. And you know, when I actually started training for a marathon was when I was writing my dissertation. 
<laughs> and so you'd spend hours and hours, you know, sitting at your computer working and doing research and writing chapters. And then I would go out and run like 15 miles. <laughs> and, um, and that was interesting. But, uh, and, and another interesting thing was when I took up boxing, was when I went through my divorce and before, you know, all the challenges of, you know, do I get a divorce? Do I not? And all that struggle and turmoil of what to do with your life. And I really, I tell people, you know, boxing was my therapy. Um, and they were, you know, key things in um, getting me through, you know, stressful and challenging times. And I don't know if it was so much the creative moments came while I was doing it. It was more of a stress reliever, but then afterwards, after doing the exercise, then I could be more settled and more focused. It's kind of like if you have a puppy or a dog, a tired dog is a well-behaved dog. So yeah. kind of to transfer from that, <laughs> we, we hopefully are a little bit more intelligent than dogs. But, you know, if you relieve the stress and you relieve the uh, the psychological pressure from things going on in life, very often it's like, oh, well, that wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. I can exactly. think I can move on and figure out how to move forward. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's totally why, I mean, I... I move and exercise to, to keep my sanity. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the physical benefits are a great bonus, but that's not why I do it. I do it for the emotional and the psychological effects of, of how I feel um, after, after, you know, moving and, and whatever activity is and being active. And I know I've heard many physicians say that, you know, movement or regular physical activity is, is a very powerful benefit for, for the mind. And I think that's dramatically unrepresented and unrecognized by many of us. Yeah. And so, um, so I guess that, that kind of the beginning of the journey, you know, started with my interest in that. And then, um, I got involved in dogs, always grew up with animals. And, uh, uh when I got, uh, a Doberman, oh, she, this was probably about 11 years ago. And I wanted to do something more meaningful than, you know, just like obedience and like fun competition. So, um, I got actually got involved in, um, search and rescue. And, um, you know, just felt like I was doing something more meaningful and, you know, helping the community versus going out and just like winning ribbons. <laughs> and um, and uh, after her, I got involved with um, protection sports and uh, part part got a Belgian Malinois and participated in a sport called French Ring, which is I think it's I think it's one of, if not the most physically demanding sports for dogs. And um, they, they have huge, they, they scale a big wall, they do really broad jumps, they jump a meter, a 1.2 meter high hurdle. Um, they do the protection work, it's a, it's a high impact sport. You know, they're running at full speed down a field and the impact that they hit, the decoys. And, um, and I love, uh, you know, I always love the, um, the more physical sports, the more contact sports. Like, you know, I love the karate, I love the boxing. It's just something about, you know, just... The, the, the impact, you know, versus just say meditating and, you know, doing things that aren't um, quite as physical. So I guess it's kind of natural that I was drawn to that kind of sport with my dog. And um, basically what happened was my dog got injured and um, he had a pulled muscle that was misdiagnosed, it took almost over 10 months, almost a year to get him diagnosed properly. And as he was rehabbing and it was almost a year to get him back to competition um as he was rehabbing i started studying and learning as much as i could about massage and fitness because i didn't want this to happen again and what i what i found out was there had been all kinds of signs all along the way that there had been a it was a chronic issue that had just had been misdiagnosed and i kept working him he wasn't limping very rarely 
And the more I learned, I found out that there had been signs all along the way that I had missed, the veterinarians had missed, and things that I should have been able to catch if I had been more knowledgeable. And then I also found that the way I was training was not the best way to be training that, you know, I, I, I kind of set him up for that injury because I was not cross training him. I w- did not have a balanced fitness program. I just kind of focused on my activities for the, the sport I was doing. And I was very, you know, kind of tunnel vision. And, uh, and so that's kind of where it all started was just learning more about it to keep my own dogs fit and healthy in the, um, you know, the high energy, high impact, um, kind of more strenuous activities that were, they were doing. And I think what happened is my natural background and interest and just physical activity, I guess it was just kind of natural that I then brought that and extended that to the work I was doing with dogs. And I think it's, it's very interesting. You said that you kind of set your dog up for it. I recently lost a dog with epilepsy, but Mm -hmm. this was a dog about a year ago. The, when she was still alive. And one of the things I do with my dogs is they move 45 minutes to an hour, most days of the week. And just because of the time of year, I was doing most of the work on hard surfaces. And my vet said, you know, her paws are wearing down because she's dragging her rear paws because of the medicine. Uh And I switched immediately to 100% soft surfaces. And immediately I felt better too. And it's kind of, I'm like you, it was, it was kind of a head slap. It's like, yeah. well, of course, when I train for marathons, when I run on soft surfaces, I feel better. Why shouldn't it be the same for dogs? And it, it's, it's amazing how you can have it right in front of you, something that in hindsight you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But until it's actually pointed out to you, you don't realize what's going on. And that's exactly what happens when I, when I've done seminars where, um, like sometimes my audience, the owners of the dogs, like competition dogs are, um, you know, people themselves who are athletes or in high school and college, they were athletes. And so I'm sitting there talking to them about how to treat their dog like an athlete. And then all of a sudden that light bulb clicks on. They're like, yes. Oh my gosh. Why? Of course. Why wasn't I thinking that? And it was just like somebody they just needed somebody there to open their eyes and be like, yes, you know, all that stuff you do for yourself. And, you know, when you put, you know, when a football player doesn't just go out and throw a football seven days a week, you know, they're in the gym, they're lifting weights, they're getting massages. And a lot of that, you know, for the people who are active themselves, a lot of them, most of them, they, they, they just, they don't make that immediate connection to their dogs unless something prompts them. And for those of us who have dogs, I mean, when they enjoy being active, they, they don't really tell you, as you said, that they're hurting. If, if you tell them yeah. to go, they're going to go. I know I've, we interviewed somebody for FitLab Pittsburgh who works and he does Schutzen with his German Shepherd. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, you, you break out the harness and the dog's ears go up and it doesn't matter what, he's ready to go. Exactly. And that's the kind of dogs that I work with, with the sport and working dogs, we tend to get those really high drive, really strong, you know, they're bred for this crazy drive. And, you know, a lot of these dogs that if you ask them to go, they will go and, 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 and they will kill themselves. You know, they'll give themselves heat stroke. They'll go, they'll, I've known, you know, police dogs that have, you know, jumped over, Gosh, one was in a it was in a parking garage, and the dog um, was chasing. I think I, I wasn't sure it was pursuing a, a guy that um, that was uh, robbing a place. But I mean, the dog like just literally like jumped off this parking garage. I don't know how many stories up he was, and um, and part of what I do is helping educate the handlers on some of those very s- subtle signs that we get from our dogs um, that they are, you know, not a hundred percent that there might be some kind of sign that something's off. And then also to help 
a lot of people, they do, it's almost like having eyes on the back of your head. <laughs> you just kind of, you know, when you have these types of dogs, you, you know, teach yourself to, you really got to be careful of your surroundings and, you know, be, be watching out for them because those really driven dogs, they just, it's when they get into that high drive, they just don't think, um, they're just, and, and they're, you know, whether they're chasing something or whatever it is, they're, they're not paying attention to often, you know, what their body's doing and that puts them in danger. We're talking to Dr. Erica Bowling. She is the owner of Northeast Canine Conditioning. You were mentioning a few minutes ago that you started running when you were working on your dissertation. And I know from looking at your bio, you had a previous career in higher education. And at what point with your dog, when you started realizing, hey, I need to do some conditioning with this, at what point did the light bulb go on and say, you know, this might be a second career or something I can transfer or, or transition out of higher education into doing what essentially is teaching just at a different level and to a, to a different yeah, audience. Exactly. So, um, yeah, what happened was when I started learning about the canine fitness, I was doing it just for my own dogs. And then people started seeing me doing stretching and doing exercises. And they started to ask me to give seminars. They're like, do you do give, you know, can you give us a seminar on this? I'm like, sure. And so it basically started out, I was just using that to earn some additional income to pay for my gas money and for my trainer, you know, to go to train my dog. <laughs> and, um, and so I had basically, um, I had a person who could not, it was actually, um, you're out near Pittsburgh. It was a seminar that I actually did out in Pittsburgh and a person wanted to come and she couldn't make it. And she said, gosh, I really would love to come and do your seminar. I can't make it. And I said, well, what if I throw some videos together for you um, and go over some of the stuff I'm teaching? And that was like my first like income I brought. I basically made like four YouTube videos. I, ch I charged her like $97 <laughs> and I did like one video a week for a month. And eventually that grew into my first um, online course for canine fitness. And um, the first couple of times I offered it, you know, I was making the first time I offered the full course and like marketed as a course, I made 5,000, around $5,000. And, um, I'm, and cur it, I'm curious how long ago was that? Cause I know the um, idea of videos, even 10 years ago, people would go, well, that's really strange. How does that work? I'm trying to think my, my, my one business, I officially, you know, uh, formalized it as an LLC. I think it was around 2014. And this was before that because it hadn't really planted a seed in my mind of like a business, you know, like, I, I think it was before then, um, before like my, I don't even know if I had my business name, you know, then. And, um, and so, yeah, so I did the online videos and, um, and my background is in education. I was at the graduate um, school of education at Rutgers and my research was online teaching and learning. So for me to put it online was just kind of an easy, you know, next step for me to do because that was kind of what I was doing at the university was learning about online teaching and learning. And so I was qu quickly, you know, able to throw together a, a, an online course and I was still only thinking about, it, you know, additional income. I was like, if I can make, you know, $100 a month or if I can make $1,000 a month. And that was my goal. And um, basically, I met up with some, it was, I think it was on Facebook. Somebody was following me on Facebook, saw my conversations, and they're like, you have to come meet my mentor. You have to come meet Jane Dewar, my mentor. And she's so awesome. And what happened was she was, uh, she's my business coach and mentor and friend. And basically people, some people had seen me on social media and seen what I was doing and they saw kind of a bigger picture for me. 
And I, I got involved with a, a community of entrepreneurs and, um, you know, my background, my parents, my dad was a, a, an engineer. My mom was a nurse. You know, I, I did not grow up in a family where people own their own business. I, I, I you know, I didn't know people who were entrepreneurs. I, I just, it was not something I was exposed to. So once I started um, meeting these people and was introduced to my, my, my friend and mentor, um, Jane Duber, and they basically kind of saw a much bigger vision for me. And then they kind of helped plant the seed that, you know, this could really be, you know, much bigger than what you're doing and you can make a lot more. And then it was, and then it was um, a couple years of like, not believing that this could happen. Like how, like I never thought I could walk away from a, a tenured associate professor position at a research one well-respected university. I just, I just never thought it could happen. And then, then people planted it in my mind. And then I was like, okay, maybe, but I would be so crazy and stupid to leave the university. And then it took, you know, another year to build up my business and then see the you know, financially see that growing. And then once I thought, you know, I, I'd like to do this full time, it, it probably took me over another year to build the courage to actually leave my, my, my position. So it's been quite a process, but I think part, a lot of it was being around visionaries and entrepreneurs who could, um, who could help mentor me and help me see something bigger than what I could see at the time. I'm always curious because I'm in higher education and I know how higher education can be. What was the impression, if you can remember back of your colleagues, when you finally said, you know, I'm going to give up this tenure track position. I'm going to do this where I'm my own boss, where some of them may be like, that's a great idea. I wish I could do that. Or some of them, yeah. you know, Dr. Bowling, you're, you're crazy. Why the heck are you doing <laughs> I would say I, I was, I was surprisingly, they when I told the Dean, you know, and I gave my notice, they were so supportive. They were extremely supportive. And like almost everybody I talked to, they were envious and they were like, they were envious. Like, you know, I wish I could tap into what my passion is, but I don't know what it is. Or, you know, I wish that I could have a passion that I could actually grow to a point where I could leave the university or, or I wish I had the courage, you know, to do what you're doing. And so, um, I'm sure some of the thought, thought, you know, oh my gosh, how can you do this? But there was that part of, wow, she's following her dream. She's living the life she wants to live and she's got the freedom to choose. And, um, they were, they were amazingly supportive, but I will say this, I had a doctoral student who recently graduated and she is in K through 12 education and, um, she's had various high level positions she did pretty much tell me, she's also a friend of mine and she was kind of like, you're crazy and you can't leave. And what about your health insurance? And what about this? And what about that? Um, she pretty much did kind of tell me like, you, you can't leave. <laughs> uh, or, 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 you know, she even told me when I left, she's like, well, I thought you were leaving too soon. Um, no, that was a, that was another friend actually. That was another friend. So I had, you know, two, one friend that was probably, you know, she was very supportive. And then when I made the decision, then she admitted to me, she thought that I was doing it a little bit too soon. And then my other friend just told me straight out, you, you can't leave. <laughs> yeah, but the, the others were, like I said, I think a lot of them, and they even told me that they, they were, um, they were very, very happy for me. And, um, and some were, like I said, they were kind of wishing that they had, something that they could turn to or fall back on or have that kind of freedom of choice. And they didn't, didn't feel like they had that, that ability and that choice. 
We're talking with Erica Bowling. She's the owner of Northeast Canine Conditioning. For those of us who have dogs that move with them regularly, we recognize how important it is to condition them. But for somebody who maybe they meet you for the first time or and they don't understand exactly what you do, kind of explain to the listeners and to me too so I can better explain it to people who listen to it. Why does somebody need to condition their dog? Why, I mean, I know many people say, well, I take my dog out for a, a walk or a jog two or three times a week. And I know uh, that's actually when I mentioned I was interviewing you to a friend of mine who's involved working with uh, tactically said, oh, if this is a good interview, I need you to give me her name because I know some of the officers I work with are looking for more information for training their dogs, not yeah. how to sniff, but how to be conditioned to do the demands of the job. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it kind of varies depending on the audience you're talking to. In the pet dog world, we've got almost 60%. It's well over 50% of the pet dog population is, um, is, is overweight or just, just completely obese and, um, and morbidly obese. And they've done research and they're seeing that with obesity, some of these dogs on average are dying two years younger. And for some breeds, it's even more than two years. Some of the research I was looking at, some dogs were on average dying three years younger, um, you know, because of the health uh, conditions and stuff related to being obese. So, um, so one of the things with, you know, with our inactive dogs or dogs that aren't getting enough exercise is um, their health um, you know, we're, we're seeing an increase in the veterinary, um, you know, the amount we're paying to keep them healthy through the veterinary fees. Um, we're seeing more, um, diseases and health related issues related to our dogs being obese. Also in, um, a lot of times when people are having behavior problems with their dogs, every time, every single time I've talked to people having behavior problems with their dogs, the first question I ask is what does your dog's regular daily and weekly activity look like? And I have yet to have anybody answer that question where I felt like their dog was getting sufficient exercise. And I think not all, but I think a lot of the behavior issues that are happening um, that people have, no matter what kind of dog, that a lot of this could be nipped in the bud if these dogs were being, um, you know, had more stimulation mentally and physically. And even my own dogs, if my dogs, I've got high drive working dogs and um, if they sit around and do nothing for a few days, like they are not fun. And if they were in inexperienced hands, they would, they could potentially become dangerous, you know, because they're going to take all that energy and they're going to turn it into negative things. And so um, for a lot of people and for like the pet dog people, they don't need these, you know, elite athletes. They don't need them, you know, climbing six foot, seven foot walls and jumping 1.2 meter hurdles. But they want a dog that listens to them and they want a dog that's not bouncing off the walls, driving them crazy and, you know, ripping apart the couch and doing and getting neurotic behaviors because they're, they're they have all this energy and nothing to do with it. And then for the sport dogs, um, the, the sport dog world is just exploding. It's just completely exploding from, you know, agility and dock diving and fly ball. And so here you're getting some of these pet dogs that are not conditioned. They're not healthy. They're overweight and their owners are putting them into these, um, these sports that are very, you know, demanding and can be hard on the body. And then you have dogs getting injured and then you have the more elite athletes, that are conditioned for the sports, but not conditioned well enough. And they're putting them in positions where the dogs are getting hurt. Um, in some instances, dogs are, 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 are dying um, from, from heat stroke, from injuries that could have been prevented. They're reti being retired early. And in the working dog world, um, which is kind of my, where my real passion and my heart is, 
when it comes to the working dog world, if you have a, a bomb dog that can't do its job, um, if you have a police dog that's doing pursuit and is, you know, getting fatigued and is losing the, the track, you know, because they're, they're tired. Um, I mean, you're, you're now looking at a situation that could be life or death for the dog, for the handler, for the community members, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's serious stuff now. And, um, and, you know, we see dogs in the, with these types of dogs that are so highly driven. Also, I mentioned the, the danger of heat stroke. And so um, what really drives me is I want these dogs to be fit and healthy. I, I'd like to help them be injury free. But to me, one of the biggest driving things is, especially with the working dogs, is if we can keep these dogs um, in, in peak physical condition, they're going to do their jobs better. And that is impacting lives, human lives and canine lives, and can be saving human lives and, and canine lives. And so to me, that is, you know, that is very, very powerful and very important for why we need to be looking at um, canine fitness. And even then, we've got research studies to show our detection dogs that are doing scent work when they are overweight and when they are not fit, um, it affects their accuracy in the detection work. So, you, you know, if you're at a public event and there's somebody planting a bomb, you don't want that fat Labrador, <laughs> you know, to be missing that bomb. You want them to find that bomb. And, you know, it's, um, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's really serious. Um, and, and, and especially in the working dog world where they are not putting enough or if any attention on this and it, and it has to be, it, it needs to be, it needs to be something they start putting more attention on and focusing on. I know that many people who are listening to this may not understand some of the terms and things that you've used. I know one of the things you've used a number of times is high drive or high drive dogs. And some people like, like me, it's like, I, I have Labradors. I love Labradors. I don't know what it is. And I don't know if they're classified as high drive. I know when I give them a day off about five or six o'clock in the afternoon, it's like, Jesus, we need to go outside and do something because you're, you're driving me up the wall. Yeah. And other people, they just, uh, they say, you know, I'm going to get a rescue dog. You don't know what you're getting. So if you can kind of define or explain for people who don't understand, what do you mean by a high drive dog? Yeah, the kind of dogs that what that normally first come to mind when I'm thinking about some of these working dogs is they've got a high energy level. Um, and also, um, it's, there, there's different types of energy. You, you know, you can have this nervous energy and you can have this, what, what's nice. And if you get a really good working dog that has a, the kind of high drive that you want, they have a really high energy and they have an ability to take this energy. And if trained correctly to focus that energy on something on, like if you train them right on the work that they're doing. And, um, so what, what I love about these dogs is that, I mean, they will literally, they have the energy and the focus to just go, go and go like they will go for hours. <laughs> and, you know, if you think about the dog that you go for, let's say a five mile hike, or you go take them, you know, running for two hours and you bring them home and, you know, uh, a lot of dogs might just go and like just crash for the whole day. But um, if you've got this real kind of high energy, high intensity dog, like you could have your dog out there all day long and bring them home and they don't even show that they're tired. And um, in training, you know, I love the intensity and the energy of these dogs, because if you train them correctly, you put all that energy and intensity in the focus of the work. But the danger is, is when you can't release that or focus that energy and drive, you get this dog that you take it out for an hour after work 
you want to sit down and have dinner, you want to, you know, do grading for your, you know, the homework from your students from the, you know, the day before, um, you, you want to have a, um, a nice chat with your spouse. And for this dog, that one hour of, of, you know, running was not sufficient. You know, they, they just, they want to go, they want to work, they want to have something to do. And so it's, it's a combination of, of there's different types of drives. You think of prey drive, you know, think of like hunting dogs, you know, or not just hunting dogs. I don't know how are your dogs when they see a squirrel or a rabbit, <laughs> uh, you know, they just go into kind of, kind of that crazy mode. And, um, and then, like I said, you, you do have dogs that have, that can have this crazy energy and crazy drive, but there are some dogs kind of what differentiates it from the ones that might be successful in the sport or work is some of them, it, it, it can be harder to channel and focus it onto a single job or an activity that you're doing. Um, so it's kind of a combination of a mental state, but also that physical energy um, to be able to go and go and go. And I know you were mentioning that when you get to the working dog level, that very often having a fit dog can make the dog more efficient. And I know that to train a dog, whether it's a bomb dog or a narcotics detection dog or you know a search and rescue dog is thousands and thousands of hours and thousands and thousands of dollars. And I don't know this, and I don't know if you do, how much of the training when they do this and when they're uh, given to the handler, how much emphasis is placed on the importance of physical conditioning, not just the conditioning for the skills that they need for the job? Yeah. From a lot of the people that I've interacted with and spoken to, it's, it's, it's really the exception uh, to find trainers or, or organizations or agencies where that is an explicit focus. Um, I would say in the sport dog world, we're starting to see more awareness, definitely in the agility dog world, it's becoming more common. Um, in a lot of parts of the working dog world, it's, it's kind of just starting to become, starting to build awareness, but it's still kind of at its initial stages in a lot of the, the lines of work. And, um, you know, I, when I talk to some of the police agencies, when I've talked to some of the people, you know, in the military, um, the search and rescue people, you know, they, they know it's important. They're out there training, but when it comes to, do you have a structured program? You know, do you consciously have like, like, you know, Oh, I'm going to work on this cardio for today, or I want to build my dog's strength or, you know, it's, like they're aware of it and they'll be like making sure they're getting out and their dogs are getting active partly because if they don't, the dogs are going to drive them crazy <laughs> because they need work to do. Um, but when I talk to people as far as having a focused kind of a structured, um, you know, kind of a directed plan for fitness, almost none of them that I've talked to, they, they don't have a structured explicit focus on it. There are some, but they're, they're the exception. Like I, I talked to one, I was at one conference and it was, um, it was a private um, company that imported, um, imported dogs from Europe and they would train them and they would sell them. They were all um, detection dogs. I wasn't sure. I'm not, I'm not sure if they specialized just in the, in the bomb, but it, it was just detection dogs and they would, bring the, bring the dogs in, they would train them and then they would sell them all over the world. And this was one of the very, very few, like one or two out of all the people I've spoken to that they actually had a, a fitness program and they could tell me, you know, all the dogs, you know, they take the four wheeler out, they all get their running and they, you know, it wasn't like a, a full balance program. They were missing components, but they were very conscious that they had a calendar, they had a schedule, you know, where the dogs were getting this exercise. And I do also know of a, one search and rescue organization out in um, California 
and they do have um, kind of scheduled time. They've got the treadmills and, you know, they do have some scheduled focused um, cardio work and stuff like that. And again, a lot of them don't have the knowledge. They're, they're kind of missing components of what I would call a balanced um, program, a, a fit program. But um, I would say those those organizations or individuals that are doing that are, are very much in the minority. And I know you've mentioned you have three different types of programs Uh Intro to canine conditioning kind of uh, conditioning programs for sporting dogs, whether they're hunting dogs or they're dogs who are involved in organized sports like dock jumping and agility, and then the, the working dogs. And I know that each program would be slightly different because the goals of the owners or the handlers is different, but the whole idea is to make the dog fit. So you mentioned a well-balanced program. In just yeah. general terms, I mean, all of us are familiar with well-balanced programs for humans. We know yep. that majority of us... <laughs> Don't do it, even though we should. Yes. How does it work for dogs? I mean, how do you get a dog stronger? Do you have little doggy dumbbells? <laughs> yeah. So when I talk about a balanced program, you know, we talk about we want to have cardio. You want to have aerobic and anaerobic. We want to have flexibility and stretching. We want to do body awareness. We want to do strengthening. So um, so one of the things is what's great is they do have um, – fitness equipment um, that is made for dogs. And um, you can do a, a lot of the canine physical therapists, like if your dog is rehabbing from surgery and injury, um, they'll use some of these types of exercises for rehab. But um, a lot of these exercises are good for just you know, general fitness. And that's how I got introduced to it because my dog had an injury and part of his rehabilitation was using balancing on an exercise disc, (laughs) you know, and, you know, placing his paws on an exercise peanut, a big ball and doing balancing exercises. And that was kind of how I, I got introduced to it. So, you know, there are focused exercises like I'm my one dog. He's more developed in the muscles in the hindquarters and less developed in the shoulders. And um, he's limped a couple times. And anytime he's had an injury, it's been in the front end. So I'll do shoulder exercises where I teach him to kind of, you know, target his paw and raise it up over his, you know, over his shoulder and put, you know, press into a, you know, I'm holding something in my hand. And so you can teach them, you know, exercise. You can do three legged stands where they're, you know, balancing on three legs and, you know, that's helping to develop core strength and balance. And then um, without the equipment, you can also do things like if you're, if you're trotting up a hill, you know, it's just like humans, you know, we're doing cardio and it's taking strength. We can do sprinting. Um, I even know um, some people, they're, you know, human um, sprinters and runners, they have like the parachutes that you can attach. Well, they, they'll even do that with dogs. They'll put a harness on the dog and they'll attach the parachute so that it builds resistance. So you're building cardio and you're also building strength. Um, and then there's, you can teach your dog, um, you know, just taking some food and luring your dog with a piece of food and do some stretching um, and positioning them. And so it, it, it's very much like what a balanced program would be for humans. But then you think about, okay, how can this apply to, to dogs and like plyometric exercises for humans, those explosive movements. So um, in the backyard, I have a series of like five, six little jumps and my dog does, you know, these bounce jumping exercises, you know, which in humans, we have the jump exercises for plyometric exercises. So, um, so I'm kind of introducing that, you know, to my students and teaching them, okay, this is a plyometric exercise. A lot of your sports, you want this explosive movement, dock diving, you want the dog to be running and jumping and exploding at the end of the dock. And so, um, so I teach the owners and handlers how to, 
I teach them about these concepts and then, okay, what does that look like for the dogs and how do these exercises, how do you do that with your dog so you can help develop stronger hindquarters and faster movements and more explosive movements and to support them in that kind of work that they do. I know as somebody who's had a dog with a chronic injury, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I lost a dog to epilepsy. I know every time the neurologist would do a follow-up and listen to her heart, she'd say, I don't know what you're doing with her, but keep doing it. And it was basically taking her out in the woods and the equivalent of fartlek training. When she wanted to run and jump, we would do that. When she wanted to walk, we'd do that. And I know for some people, they're going to look at it and they're going to say, well, they're just dogs. But other people are going to say, you know, this is something that I need to know. I go to a personal trainer. I can do this. For people who are listening to this and they're listening and they want to know more about Northeast uh, canine conditioning, you mentioned you have online programs. Yep. You also do face-to-face seminars. And if somebody's listening and say, you know, I've got eight or nine people, I think I could put this together. Do you do individual ones or is there a a schedule? We'll have extensive lists, uh, links to your webpage. Yeah. Um, on my website is Northeast canine conditioning. It's Northeast and the letter K and the number nine canine conditioning. Um, the most of the stuff that you see on my website that I offer are, are, are online because I can reach more people and have a bigger impact. I do um, have people that bring me in and do, I do conferences. I do um, present at national, international conferences, and then um, organizations and groups will bring me in to do like workshops. Um, as far as, um, I don't do so much individually, it would have to be, you know, somebody who is geographically near me. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, I mean, I've got students in Israel, South Africa, um, Greece, um, Scotland, Ireland, Great Britain. Um, I've had clients in South Korea. And so, you know, I love the international component and being able to reach more people and affect more lives online. But, um, but I have, yeah, I have, uh, like an introductory canine conditioning course. I have my elite canine athlete that's kind of more for the sport dog people. Um, and then, uh, I just opened up my, uh, the first session of my mission ready canine that is specific for, um, your police, your military and search and rescue canine handlers and, um, protection and detection work. And then my, um, my most popular program and the most comprehensive is the elite canine athlete program that leads to becoming a certified canine athlete specialist. And this is to help people learn how to not only do these activities with your dog, but also how to kind of look at the dog in front of you, kind of assess what is the dog doing, what, what sport, what work, what are the demands of that activity? And then how do you kind of customize a, a, a fitness program for that dog and handler's needs? And so it gets more comprehensive. So I have to teach about fitness, exercise science, but then also program design and program development. And then I get a lot of dog trainers and canine professionals who then want to teach others. And so because of my educational background and my business background, um, this is my only program where they actually get um, an education from me on not just the fitness, but then how do you create fitness seminars? How do you create classes to teach dogs and handlers and owners? And also, how do you, if you want to do this and bring it into your business, how do you market it and how do you sell it? So, um, so I kind of hit it at all angles using my expertise in the canine fitness world, my expertise as an educator, and then also my expertise as a business owner, entrepreneur, and my background in online teaching and learning. And I'm curious, this is just me thinking aloud when I hear, I mean, as a physiologist, I understand the importance of movement, et cetera. I would think, especially for working dogs, the programs that are spending this tremendous amounts of money to train these dogs would be looking at this and saying, wait a second, if these dogs are fit and uh, they have a potential to be a working dog for a longer period of time. So even though it costs money to train them and to get the training, 
isn't it almost potentially a better idea maybe because then you've got a fit dog that doesn't lose time because of injury yeah. and potentially can do its job for a longer period of time before it has to be retired. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these dogs, a lot of them are being imported from overseas. Um, we're trying to get more and more bred within the United States for, you know, to fill these, uh, the, the high need that we have for some of these positions and the work that the dogs are doing. And, um, just even getting an untrained dog, you know, you're looking at, um, thousands of dollars and then you're looking at, you know, some of the, um, academies for the training, you know, it could take months to get that dog handler team ready before they can actually like for police dogs before they can hit the streets. And then, um, then you're hoping to have a good working career. You don't want to invest, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into the dogs and the training. And while the dog and handler team are being trained, you know, that's taking them, you know, off the street while they're learning to work together. And um, you you don't want to have to, you know, two years later find out or three years later have to find out you have to start from scratch again because a dog has to retire early or has got an injury and can't continue working. Now you got to go bring in a new dog. Um, even if it's a handler who is experienced, you still need to, they need to have that time together to become that partner. Um, so that you're, you're losing some of that time while they're working together to, you know, get back uh, and, and be operational. And yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it, you're, I mean, when you look at the big, you know, government type jobs in the work, I mean, it, you're looking at potential millions of dollars they could be saving if they can get these dogs um, and keep them fit longer. And it also comes into um, the selection process. A lot of times when they're choosing to purchasing these dogs, they're choosing them on kind of by the breed and the, the drive, <laughs> right? The drive. And that's like number one. And the structure of the dog is not necessarily, they, they don't give that top priority. And, um, and what's happening too is when I teach people about the canine fitness, I teach them how to kind of structurally look at that dog and kind of structurally analyze that dog for balances and imbalances and looking at, you know, there might be potential weaknesses already that we can see. So what, what I like to do is expand being able to teach people about fitness, but the people who are actually purchasing these working dogs and going overseas or importing them in, helping educate them on how to, I call it the critical eye, how to have that critical eye to observe that dog in front and say, this dog's weak in the back, this dog's straight in the shoulders, this dog, you know, it looks like the way it's moving, it looks like there's an imbalance here. And, you know, maybe we better wait before we jump on board and make this one of our purchases. And I'm curious, you mentioned a few minutes ago that with one of your dogs, you notice that when she does have an injury or he does have an injury, it's in the front. What is it? And that he was weaker in the front. What is it that you think that is the reason why he's weaker in the front? Is this genetic? Is this something that maybe when he was younger, he had different uh, movement problems? Part of it is his structure. So when we, um, one of the things I teach about structure is what we call angulation. You look at the shoulders and the hindquarters and kind of where those bones meet and basically what happens is if you have, if you think of like a, a show line German shepherd, they've got long kind of sloping backs, their hind ends kind of long and sloping. And then think of like a mastiff. <laughs> They're more kind of straight, you know. And um, so I teach people to kind of look at that angulation. And basically what happens is you want kind of moderation. Like I don't want a dog that's real long in the back. If you think about a weightlifter, you know, you think of, you know, they're kind of 
square, you know, muscular. You don't have, like, I'm tall and thin and have a really long back. I have a lot of lower back problems. <laughs> you know, I, I don't just don't have that muscle, you know, supporting this long torso. And so it's the same with the dogs. I want a more of a square dog. Um, I don't want a real long back dog. And when it comes to angulation, I want moderation because if you have excessive angulation, you might have more reach of stride, more range of motion, but you lose stability. And if you have a dog that's very straight, you might have more stability, but you're kind of missing some of that ease of movement and that fluidity, like, you know, in a border collie, a shepherd. And so sometimes what happens is by the structure and the build of the dog, if you have a high impact activity, um, you know, they're, they're, it's like doing, um, you know, doing a, um, a St. Bernard on agility course <laughs> versus a border collie, their structure, you know, if I did as many jumps and as much jumping and, and running with that St. Bernard, it's going to feel it in its body differently than a border collie because of how they're structured. Um, so part of it is, um, part of it can be the structure of the dog. And then also in combination to the structure, the demands of the activity you're doing with the dog. Um, so certain sports and certain jobs are going to put harder, more stresses on the body in certain parts of the body. And if you aren't properly conditioning and strength training, then you're basically setting your dog up for injury. If they might ge genetically structurally be weaker in an area, and then you put them in a situation that's very physically demanding. And I know this is speculation and I know the relatively speaking compared to the sporting dog world, the working dog world is relatively newer. Do you foresee that people looking at this in the future, once we start looking at costs and the effects of conditioning, that maybe what we think of as good working dog breeds, maybe 15, 20 years down the line, we may categorize even more and say this specific breed is good for this sort of work, but we found long-term it doesn't make sense for that sort of work, or am I kind of overreaching with my thought process? I mean, in a way, some of this has happened a little bit already. For example, with some of the police and military dogs, um, some of the shift to the Belgian Malinois over, you know, German shepherds or choosing shepherds and, you know, over other breeds. Um, and so they are, you know, they do find in some working situations and, you know, bloodhounds doing scent work and um, some of the spaniels they're using for some of the detection work, um, you know, they, they do kind of weed out kind of almost genetically and breed wise dogs that have more capabilities than others in certain areas and, you know, tendencies and stuff. Um, so in, in some areas, we do already kind of see certain types of breeds, you know, being gravitated toward, towards certain types of jobs. Um, so I don't know, um, in the working dog world, it's like, we kind of already see that because if you, you know, if you don't do well, you don't make it, <laughs> you know, you're kind of a washout. And so, you know, um, if you look at it breed wise, they kind of, um, kind of self-eliminate. Um, but when we look at the sport dog world, um, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's kind of different rules of thought. You have people that have their dog and their dog's a passion and they want to do an activity with the dog. So even though I might be like, okay, I know a St. Bernard is not the best dog for agility, but I love my St. Bernard and I love agility. So I'm going to do it anyways. And I might not, might not beat the border collie, but, um, you know, but I'm going to do it and do it, you know, safely. And, um, some people will be like, okay, I love agility. And I'm going to buy a you know dog that I know can do well in agility. So I think the danger here is when people aren't aware of this, they're not aware of the fitness needs, they're not aware of the impact of the structural impact of the dogs. What happens is you get somebody who has that 
off breed, the breed that maybe physically is not at its best for that particular job. And the person who works that dog is not as knowledgeable. And, you know, you kind of have these, you know, these expectations and not realizing that it's not just a matter of training, but it's also an issue of how is your dog built and, you know, what's the dog's, you know, breeding and what are the drives of that dog. So I do think more knowledge in that regard. And, you know, we, I, you know, some people are going to, they love their breeds, you know, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm a boxer person. I'm a, you know, border collie person. And it doesn't matter what sport they do. They're like, this is my breed. So hopefully um, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I would like them to move forward um, and be thoughtful and smart in what they're doing. And if they are going to take that St. Bernard and they are going to do agility, let's think of what we can do to do it more safely and protect the dog. Um, And I would imagine also with that St. Bernard, maybe not quite the same volume that the uh, border collie does. Yep, exactly. And so that's where I'd like to see, you know, um, just people being um, more thoughtful in in what they're doing um, and in their training. I think I think when it comes to the sport dog world, the majority of the people, they kind of have their favorite sport. They have their favorite breed. A lot of times they have the dog first. That's what happened to me with search and rescue was I had the dog first. I did search and rescue and it turned out she wasn't the best dog for search and rescue. And then I got a higher drive dog, a dog, you know, that was bred for work. And a lot of people, that's what happens is when they first start in these activities, um, when it's by choices, they kind of have that dog at home and then they're like, okay, I want to go out and do something with my dog. And it's not always what they do. It's not always, you know, the best match for their dog, say physically, athletically, but they're out there, they're active, they're bonding, you know, it's just making sure they do it safely is, is my concern. We're talking with Erica Bowling. She is the owner of Northeast Canine Conditioning. I think she's done a great job of explaining whether you have a sporting dog, a dog that you just like to get out in the woods with, or a working dog because you're involved with an organization. Physical fitness is important for you and the dog. I often say if you're going to do something, do it either better or differently than somebody else so you you can differentiate yourself. And that's why I was so excited when I saw the Instagram post that she was making. We're going to have extensive show notes where you can get more information if you're interested in any of the programs that she offers. And I want to thank you, Dr. Bowling, for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. I'm a dog person, and I think anybody who has a dog needs to recognize that As you mentioned at the beginning, there's so many dogs that are obese, and whether it's a working dog or just your family pet, the more fit it is, the better of quality of life they have. And with any luck, the longer you'll have possession of that dog as a companion, a friend, and a working dog. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. 
Until next week, keep on moving.